Come follow me, the Savior said, then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we be one with God's own This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, a weekly podcast dedicated to my musings and observations on the New Testament and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more content, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Hey guys, welcome back to The Savior Said. This is June 10th through 16th. Our assignment is Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, John 18. The title is Not As I Will, But As Thou Wilt. It's all about the Garden of Gethsemane this week, y'all. So, But first, before we get started, I want to say thank you so much for listening. This week we passed 10,000 downloads worldwide, which is just mind-blowing to me. We're currently sitting at 10,075 downloads, which is huge. Um, And that's thanks to you guys. Thanks to you guys listening. And I'm so appreciative of that, that you guys tune in to hear all my crazy, quirky little stories and the love and support that you pour out for it. So thank you so much for that. I really do appreciate it. Also this week, I got a little excited with social media and I've created accounts on both Instagram and Twitter for The Savior Said. So, you know, I've been mostly kind of basing my social media presence on Facebook, but If you are a Twitter user or an Instagram user and that is your preferred method of social media, check out The Savior Said. You can just search for it on both of those platforms and it will come right up. Okay, so let's jump right on in. Um, I'm going to do a super short summary, and then I'm going to kind of go through the scriptures and talk to you about some things that stood out to me this week. These scriptures, it's one of those things where, again, I've read these scriptures like a hundred times. I've heard the stories a hundred times in Sunday school and primary and stuff like that. So at first, it was really hard to kind of crack the surface and get underneath it to stuff that I hadn't ever really thought about before, but I was able to do that. So I want to share some of that with you. But first, here's our summary. Summary is Jesus is anointed. Jesus and his disciples have Passover and Jesus institutes the sacrament. Judas betrays him. Jesus is arrested and then goes on trial. And then Peter denies him three times before the cock crows. So that was a super quick summary, right? But now we're going to go a little bit more into detail into each one of those little spots I just talked about. The first one is Jesus is anointed. And this happens when Mary, you know, they're having dinner in Bethany at Lazarus's house. And Mary, you know, of Mary and Martha fame, comes out and she's got a bottle of spikenard. And spikenard is an interesting essential oil. It's a plant that only grows in the Himalayan mountains of India and Nepal, so it would be very, very rare for it to be in Israel. Like, super rare, right? It was so special and so important that they would make it in these bottles that didn't have, like, an opening or anything on them. Just whenever you were ready to use it, you just broke the bottle and you used it once. It was like a one-time-only type thing. And the spike nerd is supposed to smell kind of a little bit like valerian. And I have to tell you, having smelled valerian before in my life, (laughs) I'm like, that would not be a good smell because valerian is kind of super gross. But it's supposed to have a very sweet, earthy smell. And traditionally, 
tradition states that the spikenard that Mary used on Jesus was mixed with cardamom. So maybe it had a little bit of spiciness with it as well. So I hope it smells better than I'm thinking it smells because I'm thinking it smells not very good. But for Jesus' sake, I hope it smelled better. <laughs> it was also really, really expensive because, again, it was an import from Nepal or India. You know, Judas estimates in John 12, 5, he estimates that the value of Mary's spikenard is 300 pence. And so if the translation to that is like 300 denarii, and denarii being one day's wage, then this little bottle of spikenard that Mary had would be equivalent to several tens of thousands of dollars today. Okay, like maybe, you know, as much as like a brand new car pretty much is what she was holding in her hand and what she used to anoint Jesus. Some traditions even say that it was like part of her dowry. I don't necessarily know that she knew she was anointing him for burial. Um, I think maybe she was doing it just to show her devotion and her worship of Jesus. But Jesus, you know, he took it as that was, you know, her anointing him for burial. And the thing I think is also very interesting about that is when we think about anointings today, especially anointings with oil, it's usually a man that does the anointing. So it's interesting to me that it was a woman that anointed Christ before he died. I don't know what really to make of that, but I just thought it was interesting and wanted to point it out, okay? So after that, they gather, they go for Passover. There's a couple different events that lead them into being able to have this big room for Passover. They're having what we call the Last Supper. And so they're gathered in this upper room of this house. They're sitting all around. And, you know, I think of the, the paintings that we have of the Last Supper. And they're all on one side of the table, guys. <laughs> like, if you go look at, like, the different paintings, they're all on one side of the table. And I'm like, I just know that was not how it happened. I know that they were on all the sides of the table. So it makes me laugh sometimes to see the art the Last Supper. But so they're all sitting down and they're celebrating Passover. And just a reminder that Passover celebrates the freedom of the children of Israel from Egypt, you know, when Moses went and all the different plagues that they had. And the last plague was, you know, the plague coming and taking the firstborn of all the different families and killing the firstborn, except for those who went and painted over the door with the blood of a lamb. So how interesting is it that they're celebrating Passover, the blood of a lamb, you know, that their firstborn children will not be killed right as Jesus is about to be killed for their sins. You know, it's just kind of a really cool coincidence the way that the timing of that worked out. And in fact, the timing of that, some people say that the timing of the Passover is actually when Christ was crucified. So it might make sense that the dinner that he's having with his disciples is a couple days before. Like maybe he's having an early dinner. He knows that he won't be around with them for Passover. And so he's like, hey guys, let's celebrate Passover a little bit early this year, right? And so they gather around. Um, he goes and he does the sacrament for them. He kind of shows them, you know, this is the bread and this is the wine and this is my body and this is my blood and, you know, kind of tells them the whole thing. I think it goes over a lot of their heads, just whoop, right over their heads, right? But for us who are reading it, you know, here thousands of years later, it doesn't go over our heads. We understand what's going on and it's precious that we have it in there. Okay, so the big bad guy in this story, I want to talk about Judas because I have been thinking about Judas a lot this week. And I don't know why Judas has captured my attention so greatly this week, but um, I've been thinking a lot about Judas and his betrayal of Christ. Um, if we can read here in John 12, where Judas kind of makes his first big entrance, I guess, into um, this, these last scenes right before Gethsemane and the cross and things like that. It's right when Mary has gone and she's anointed Jesus. She's broken the bottle of spike nerd and she's like, you know, anointing Christ with it. And Judas is the one who raises like, hey, why did she do this? You know, this bottle of 
cost 300 pence. Like, you could have totally sold this and gave, given the money to the poor, right? But interesting about Judas, John says in 6, This he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the bag, which is like the money where the all the disciples kept their money together. And he bare what was put therein. He was stealing from the money of the disciples. So he was basically like the treasurer of Jesus' little posse. And he was also, you know, taking money from the little purse that they carried around with him that he was in charge of. So not a good guy, first of all. You know, I'm like, oh, that's kind of bad choice, Judas. Like, that, that's not good. Right? And so he's chastising Mary for this. Like, hey, you could have sold that and given it to the poor. But he didn't want her to give it to the poor. He wanted her to put it in the purse that he could just take more money out of. Which I'm also interested in because I'm like, what was he doing with the money that he took out of there? Because it's not like they had a bank and he was like taking it to the, his bank account and like saving it for later, putting it, you know, somewhere in the Cayman Islands. I mean, you no, they didn't have that. So I'm interested that he was taking money out of the purse, but like, I don't know what he was buying with that. You know, the disciples would notice if he like rolled up in like a really nice horse-drawn carriage or something. I don't know. Like they would notice if he was spending a lot on different things, I would think. So I'm not sure how he was taking the money or what he was taking or what he was doing with it, but he was definitely stealing from the disciples' purse, which is not good. Okay. Um, Interesting about Judas Iscariot is that if we read in the Bible dictionary, Iscariot means belonging to Cariath. You know, Iscariot, Cariath sounds very similar. And Cariath is in the southern part of Judea, which is interesting because all the disciples in Christ, they all come from Nazareth and the Galilee area, whereas Judas comes from the southern part. So he was maybe a little bit different culturally than the rest of them. He maybe have felt like a little bit of an outsider compared to the rest of them. So, you know, there may have been a little bit of difference. Also, I think the area that he was from was a little bit more cosmopolitan. And so, you know, he may have had issues with following around these disciples who are kind of country bumpkins and they're like the leaders, but yet he's kind of having to follow along even though he feels like he's a little bit more sophisticated than them. So there kind of may have been some sort of like some sort of power play kind of going on between him and the rest of the disciples. Also interesting is that There's some evidence out there, and I say out there being like floating around the internet, so you know, take it with like a grain of salt, maybe two grains of salt, I don't know, but that he had some sort of like strong political leanings. And so when you see Christ and he's following Christ, he's following Christ because he believes Christ is the Messiah who is going to come in with a sword and they are going to take back Jerusalem and Israel from the Romans. And that's what he thinks Christ is about. And that's why he's following Christ, not necessarily because he believes that he's the Messiah who's going to save the people and their sins, but because he thinks he's the Messiah who's going to save them from the Romans. And so when it comes time for him to go to betray Christ to the elders, he does it because he's like, okay, well, this guy's not who I thought he was. Like, I thought he was totally going to come and save me and, like, my people from the Romans, but obviously he's not going to do that. He's talking about going and dying and, like, no, this is totally not what I signed up for. And so it was easier then for him to go to betray Christ to the Jewish elders. Also, there's a more noble line of thought out there that says that Judas maybe believed that Christ was really was the Messiah that was going to come save us in our sins, and he really wanted to get the ball rolling on that. And so he betrayed him to the Jewish elders so that they would come and crucify him to get the ball rolling on the whole atonement thing. 
So, I don't know. There, there's various different reasons that people think Judas betrayed Christ. For me, the only thing that makes textual sense that we can read from the text is greed. The motivation of greed. Even though he didn't betray him for very much, he betrayed him for about 30 pieces of silver, right? It's interesting to me, too, the 30 pieces of silver versus the 300 pence, which, you know, roughly pence, silver, they're kind of the same thing. But the 300 pence, I mean, that's like 10 times what he betrayed Christ for. That Mary spent basically on Christ, which is interesting to me. I don't know. There's just some some numbers that kind of echo back and forth there. But the 30 pence, that would probably be like, you know, a month's worth of wages. So like whatever you would make in a month, that's what he betrayed Christ for, um, that particular amount. And it's interesting to me, too, that Christ, I think, loved him. You know, I think he still loves him. He all, he loved him all the way to the end. If we read in John 13, 21, it says, When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified, said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And the disciples looked on one another, doubting of whom they spake. But now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So we know that's John. And Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it be of whom he spake. So what's happening here in this scenario is they're all kind of like reclining around the table at dinner and they're it's a triclinium table so they're all like kind of lying on their sides which would then put you in like kind of the personal space of the person next to you and so John the disciple who Jesus loved was obviously next to Christ and so he's kind of leaning towards Christ's you know side and also I will say this because there's a lot of like you know Jews coming up and giving him a kiss and you know leaning on Jesus's bosom and things like that and I'm like you know that there's a lot of personal space like violating here going on like I like my personal space bubble. People, I do not want them to be all up in my personal space bubble. But apparently Jesus was okay with it. I think it was a cultural thing, honestly, for people to be much closer than they are. And I've even heard people say that Americans tend to guard our personal space a little bit more fiercely than the rest of the world. And so maybe it's just an American thing. Maybe it's a modern thing. I don't know. But there's a lot of like up close and personal stuff going on here that I'm like, oh, I don't know that I would like all these people up in like, you know, in my area. But anyways, so John is reclining and he's up near Jesus. Okay. And so Simon Peter says, Hey, ask him who is going to betray him. He just said that one of his disciples is going to betray him. Ask him who it is. This is in John 13, 25. And then John said, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered and says, he it is to whom I shall give sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And in 27, we read after the sop, Satan entered into him. And then Jesus said unto him that thou doest do quickly so satan entered into him after the sop that jesus gave him which you know sops like a little piece of bread and they were dipping it in like oil kind of like you do you know when you go to like carabas or something like that and they give you bread and they give you the olive oil with like the herbs and stuff in it and you dip the bread in so kind of something similar to that and so he gives him the sop and then satan enters into him i think what's interesting here is that and you know i've mentioned before i think that whenever we have leanings towards stuff you know like depression or anxiety just naturally occurring that satan kind of comes and like pushes on them and pushes them in directions that bring us away from Christ and kind of uses the anxiety and stuff against us. I don't think he causes anxiety or depression. I think he just uses it. And in this case, I think he was taking Judas's kind of natural inclination towards greed and money hoarding or whatever it is that Judas was into. And he pushes it over the edge into betraying Christ. And so I think that he's just kind of taking a natural leaning that Judas already had and, you know, pushing him over into the edge of betrayal. After that, he went out immediately out and it was 
was night. Um, another thing I think is interesting, when we go into the different Gospels and we read about this scenario, not in John, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he talks to the disciples and he says, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. This is Matthew 16, 21. And in 22, they were exceedingly sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And I have always thought that was very interesting, that their first thought wasn't to look around and be like, ooh, is Simon Peter going to betray him? I wonder if, you know, you know, over here, Andrew's going to betray him. Or, you know, that wasn't their first thought to point fingers. Their first thought was to say like, ooh, is it me? Am I capable of betraying Christ? And so that made me think, I'm like, am I capable of betraying Christ? And, you know, Judas didn't betray Christ for very much. It was, you know, again, the 30 pieces of silver, which definitely isn't enough that you would think, oh, yeah, that's totally worth betraying Christ. No, it's not. But do we betray Christ for less? Yeah, we do. Whenever we violate the covenants we've made with him or whenever we violate the commandments he's given us, whenever I judge somebody... I'm betraying Christ for much less than Judas did. And so when the disciples are looking around asking Christ, is it I, am I the one who's going to betray you? The answer is yes, because every one of us sins and in that way betrays Christ. So I learned this week that I need to judge Judas a little less harshly. I'd been a little harsh on Judas for his betrayal of Christ. Like, oh, 30 pieces of silver, that's so silly. Like, that's so little. Come on, guy. And instead, no, um, I betray him for much less. You know, today I was in the grocery store and I got stuck in this long line and there was a lady in front of me and it was the 15 items or less line and she had a whole cart full of stuff and I was totally judging her for being in that line. Okay, that's way less than what Judas betrayed Christ for. So I need to watch that uh, because I realize I am betraying Christ all the time whenever I violate the different commandments that he's given me. So I need to really take care of that. All right, moving on. We're going to talk about Gethsemane. So first of all, one of the things I think that's interesting from our reading this week, we saw in Mark 14, 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. I love that they sang a hymn first before Christ took the atonement upon him, um, that there was a hymn sung. And I love that because I feel like hymns bring in the spirit of Christ into whatever meeting we're in. So I love that Christ set that example and we read about that in Mark. That's pretty awesome. And then, you know, we have the whole situation with the disciples like falling asleep and Christ coming and being like, guys, can't you stay awake? And then he goes and prays some more and he comes back and they're asleep. He's like, guys, can't you like stay awake? Like, what is the deal? And so again, like for a very long time, as I've been reading the scriptures and reading these stories, I have always judged the disciples very harshly for this. Like, guys, he is taking on the sins of the world and you're taking a nap? Really? Like, what are you thinking, guys? But here's the thing. If we go into the text, we see several different places. Jesus going and praying in the Garden of Gethsemane was something that he did fairly frequently. Um, you see several scriptures that says, as he was wont to do, and things like that. So this is obviously something that happened pretty regularly, and he probably took the disciples with him. Number one, to model the interaction between him and his father. But number two, probably for safety. You know, I mean, they, he's got them. Of course, he could call down legions of angels at any time. But, you know, the disciples probably come just to make sure that he's safe and stuff there. And so he's there in the garden and he's praying and he's about to take on the atonement and the disciples are sleeping. And again, I'm like, guys, like, really, you can't, you could not stay awake through this. But how many times have I fallen asleep on Christ? You know, how many times have I let my testimony fall asleep on Christ? Or, you know, literally, there have been times during general conference when I'm listening to general conference on the couch, and a prophet of God is speaking, and I am passed out snoozing, okay? So... 
I can't judge the disciples too harshly for this because I do the same thing all the time. That also to me was another wake up call that I need to be better in my own personal life on finding the times where I am falling asleep on Christ, you know? And he says, pray that ye enter not into temptation for the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that's a perfect description for it because I want to be like Christ. I want to follow him and I want to do what's right, but the flesh is weak. You know, I make mistakes and I mess things up and I do things wrong sometimes. And so that's why I'm so grateful for the Garden of Gethsemane and what Christ did there while the disciples were asleep. Then up next, the next thing I was thinking about this week is Luke 22:44, And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And Luke, the great physician that he is, captures this physical response so beautifully right here in scripture for us. He's the only one that really captures this whole sweating the great drops of blood thing, um, which is an interesting medical phenomenon. It's called hematidosis, okay? And so what happens during hematidosis is that you've got these little capillaries underneath your skin, and when you're under a great amount of stress, the capillaries burst. And so then when you are, you know, you're super stressed out and you start sweating, then the blood from the capillaries that have burst, they mix with the sweat and then it comes out of your pores. So you bleed from every pore and that's what was happening to Christ. And the medical examples that they found in modern medicine is usually people who are being triggered by a fight or flight response. It's noted in people undergoing extreme stress. One of the medical studies that was referenced that I read um, said that the man was in the middle of a family feud and it started. Um, and they also see it especially in people who are awaiting execution, both in foreign lands where they're being executed, you know, for not good reasons, but then also in prisoners in jail and stuff like that that know that they're about to be executed and put to death. Um, it will happen sometimes. So interesting that's happening in Christ who knows he's about to be put to death in, you know, a day or so. And it's interesting to me what the medical literature said about it, that it being triggered by a fight or flight response. And, you know, that's where you have that moment of just extreme adrenaline that you're undergoing something that is really hard and your body is trying to decide, do I fight this out or do I run away? And we see Christ actually have that conversation with his heavenly father in Matthew 26, 42, when he says, he prayed saying, Oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And other examples in Mark 14, 36. And he says, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. So Christ is there literally making the fight or flight decision. Do I I run away from this or do I stay and fight and take on this huge weight that I'm about to bear? And that's when the hematidosis takes place. So I think it was probably that fight or flight kind of conversation that he's having with his father in heaven that kind of maybe triggered that. You know, he's feeling that physical response and that kind of correlated with the conversation he was having with his father in heaven. But I think it's also interesting that whenever we go through something hard, we cry out to our Father in Heaven, Heavenly Father, this is too hard. I can't do it. I don't want to do it, Heavenly Father. You know, it's important to remember that we are not the first person to say that. And that Christ, who is the most perfect, unblemished person who has ever lived on the face of the earth, asked the same question. The Son of God asked the same question. Do I have to do this? I can't do this. I don't think I can do this. Please. 
But the important thing is that he then bent his will to his father in heaven. He decided to fight it out and withstand the pressure, the, you know, incredible anguish and agony that he was about to take on in Gethsemane. And so I think it's important to note that just wanting to not do something does not make you weak. It's sticking around and going through it, even when you don't want to do it, that makes you stronger. So... That's the lesson I took from this week as well. Okay, so then Christ takes on him the sins of all the world. He also takes on all the pain and all the agonies that we will ever go through. But we're going to talk more about that and come follow me. So I'm going to skip it for right now. Up next, Jesus is arrested. There's a couple of quirky things that happen during this arrest that I find that are really interesting. And it's the quirky things that I like because I feel like it makes the story more real. When you have these like little human elements kind of inserted into it. Um, And the first example that I see, well, first of all, going back to Judas a little bit here in in this scene, you know, Judas comes up and he kisses him on the cheek so the Jewish elders know, you know, this is the guy to arrest. Which is crazy to me because I'm like, dude, they've been hanging out with him in the temple and stuff. How did they not know who he was? But I don't know. Judas still, they paid him to come up and, you know, show which one Christ was. So in Matthew 26, 50, and Jesus said unto him, Judas, friend, wherefore art thou come? Even at this last moment where he knows, he knows Judas is about to betray him. He still calls him friend. He still loved Judas. He literally just took on Judas's sins for betraying him, like there in the garden. And he turns around and he looks at him with love. That, to me, is amazing Christ-like love. And a huge example to me of Christ-like love. And so after that, you know, they come and they lay their hands on him and take him. And some of the little quirky things that we see here that happen in this scene is Matthew 16, 51. And one of them that were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. So he chops off the guy's ear. Jesus like reaches down and picks the ear up and heals the guy. And then they, he says, you know, don't defend me, guys. There's no reason to defend me. No reason to get violent because think I cannot now pray to my father and he presently shall give me more than 12 legions of angels. Jesus, from the very time you know, he was born, was protected like crazy, I'm sure, by angels all around him. And had he at any moment wanted to, you know, fight or flight, take the flight route, yeah, he could have called down angels and they would have saved him. So he decided to put himself through it, though, and he did it for us. And so I love that response that, dude, put your sword away because I could call down angels if I wanted to. I don't want to call down angels, so I want to go through with this, is what he's telling his his disciples there. Okay, and then one of my favorite quirky parts about the whole scene is in Mark 14 and it's Mark 14 51 and there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body and the young man lay hold on him and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked (laughs) okay so Jesus is being arrested and I'm sure it's like pure pandemonium in the garden like people are running around left and right no one knows who's a disciple and who's a Jewish elder and or whoever was with them and like people are just running like crazy people right and in the middle of all this there's a young man so some some guy somewhere there's several different traditions that say who he is some people say he's actually Mark like the author of the book of Mark and you know this was his story some people say he was the owner of the garden 
I tend to think that's probably more likely that he was the owner of the garden. He was probably sleeping in his house where the garden was. You know, he let Jesus go into his garden because he knew that was a peaceful place for Christ. Maybe he was a follower of Christ. And so he's asleep in his house while all this is going on. He hears the commotion happening outside. And so he, I guess, was sleeping naked. And then he took the sheets and wrapped it around himself because he's like, what is going on in my garden? And so he takes the sheet, wraps him up in the sheet and runs outside. And, you know, there's soldiers everywhere and there's, you know, people everywhere. And I guess one of the soldiers reaches over and grabs the guy and grabs the sheet that he has wrapped around him. And the guy, like, just runs straight out of the sheet, you know, buck naked and is running off into the night. And so I know it's odd and I'm not sure why it is contained there in the book of Mark, but in a very somber and sad and almost depressing scene in the Bible, we've got this little bit of just like makes me think of someone streaking on a football field that just kind of makes me smile. So that's one of the quirky parts that I like out of this story here. And then of course we come to like the really somber and sober part of the rest, you know, we're going downhill for here is where it's going. And, you know, he's taken before the several different trials. And, you know, I think we're going to talk more about that in an upcoming episode. So I'm not really going to go into that here. But there is the sadness that Peter denies that he knows Christ. And, you know, at the beginning, he's like, no, Christ, I will never, you know, deny you. I'm willing to die for you. Like, come on. And then after Christ is arrested, of course, Peter denies him three times. And he realizes, he remembers what Christ had prophesied that he would deny him three times. And he weeps bitterly right? And again, I've always judged Peter harshly for that. Like, Peter, come on. You're like, you know Jesus. You know Jesus. You have been around him, and you're going to deny him like three different times, Peter? Like, what is the deal? But how many times do I deny Christ? How many times do I have the opportunity to tell people why I don't drink coffee, or why I don't smoke, or why I do something the way I do? And I'm like, oh, well, because I just think it's healthier this way, or something. And I don't say, well, it's because I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I choose to follow what my prophet has told me, you know, and I get a little like, ooh, about that. It makes me a little uncomfortable to say that, but I need to get better about that, not denying the gospel of Christ. I need to be less like Peter and more like how Christ wants me to be, right? Okay, so that is kind of my thoughts on the scriptures this week. I know that was really long-winded, so thank you for sticking through that. We're going to jump into Come Follow Me next. So jumping into Come Follow Me Now. So first up in the introduction, it talks a little bit about the disciples and how they were falling asleep while Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane. It talks about Christ saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Um, And an angel appears and strengthens him. And the intro says, While we are not physically present to witness the act of selflessness and submission, in a sense, we can all be witnesses of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Every time we repent and receive forgiveness of our sins, and every time we feel the Savior's strengthening power, we can testify of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. So yeah, we weren't there, and you know, the disciples, yeah, they may have been sleeping, but every time we feel the ability to repent, we feel that strengthening power, we feel, you know, just the grace of the atonement, we can testify of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, and that makes us witnesses, you know, people who can testify of the power of the Garden of Gethsemane and what happened there. So, I love that. I'm like, that's really empowering, um, that we are actually witnesses of the Garden of Gethsemane. 
So the first section in Come Follow Me, it says the sacrament is an opportunity to remember the Savior. And it has several different little questions it's got here. And the first one is, what do you do to remember people who have been important in your life? And I think, to me, one of the things I do to remember people who have been important in my life is I tell stories about them. Stories are an important part of my family culture. Um, my son even says, you know, we go over to my parents' house every Sunday for Sunday dinner. And my son, a lot of times it's interesting to me because he'll be sitting there at the dinner table just like listening. And I'll be like, come on, buddy, don't you want to go? Like, I'm like, I know you want to go home and play Fortnite. I know we've got stuff we got to get ready for the week. I'll be like, you want to go? He's like, no, I want to stay. I'm like, okay, we'll stay a little bit longer. And like, you know, 30 minutes later, I'm like, come on, don't you want to go? It's time to go. He's like, no, no, I want to stay. And so one day we're walking out to the car after dinner at my parents and I'm like, okay, so, you know, what's it? You always want to stay at my parents' house. Like, why do you want to do that? And he's like, your family just tells the best stories. He's like, I love just listening to the stories that you guys tell at dinner on Sunday nights. And I was like, oh, that's a really nice thing of you to say. Like that really touched my heart, but my family is like we are very much a culture of storytellers. I think a lot of that is because we are all kind of like spotlight drama queens. Like we like having the spotlight on us. So the more dramatic and funny and, you know, engaging a story we can tell, the more the spotlight's on us. And so we're all kind of like that. But I also think it just helps pass down memories of the t different things that have happened in our family history and, um, but that's really one of the ways that I really like to remember the people who are important to me is to tell stories about them and their lives and things that they learned and the people that they loved and, you know, just kind of pass that along. So when I go in and I read these stories about Christ and his disciples and Christ's life and the things that he taught, being able to tell those stories to others is a really important way for me to remember him. Hence, the podcast, The Savior Said. To tell his story to others, I think, is a really important thing for me. All right, so next bullet point. When the Savior introduced the sacrament to his disciples, he said, This do in remembrance of me. We read in Luke twenty two nineteen, And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. All right. And in 3 Nephi 18:7 we read, and this shall you do in remembrance of my body which I have shown unto you, and it shall be a testimony unto the Father that ye do always remember me. And if ye do always remember me, ye shall have my spirit to be with you. Come follow me then asks, take some time to ponder the experience you would have during the sacrament each week. What can you do to make it more meaningful? And then it talks about some different suggestions that you can do. And so again, I think, you know, because I like stories about people that are important to me, a lot of times during the sacrament, I start thinking about the different people in the Savior's life and the different things that the Savior did and the different healings that he did to really kind of focus on him. And I also spend a lot of time talking to my Heavenly Father during the sacrament, um, you know, just praying and just kind of contemplating and talking to my Father about, you know, what do I need to improve on and how can I improve and, you know, please let thy grace, you know, come upon me and help me to be better and stronger in these different areas of my life that I'm working on. But another thing, and I know, like, I'm having a hard time conveying, like, this, this next part here. But this past Sunday, I was sitting there in the sacrament row, you know, and taking the sacrament. And I guess it's because we've been focusing so much on this on Income Follow Me. But I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, with this ordinance, Christ is literally taking on my sins on him right now. 
Like, and I don't know why it hit me, why that was so significant to me in that moment. But I was like, this is amazing. Like, this is amazing love. And this is powerful grace that in this moment, this moment that I'm eating this bread and drinking this water, my sins are literally being erased. They're literally being taken upon somebody else. They're being removed off of me and put on Christ. And it just kind of floored me to really think of it that way. Which, you know, I'm like, again, I don't know why it hit me that way. I don't really know if I'm conveying it correctly, like the magnitude kind of of what I was feeling this past Sunday. But that's really what I was feeling. And, you know, I thought I've taken, you know, obviously I've taken the sacrament for like 36 years now that I've been here on this earth. Because ever since I was really little, my, my parents would, you know, set an example, we take the bread and water. So obviously I've been taking it for a long time, but it never really has kind of hit me in that way. And it's interesting to me because when I was a little girl, you know, we would go to sacrament meeting and I'd be sitting there and they'd say the sacramental prayers. And, you know, of course, the priests that are saying it, they're kind of off in the corner, you know, near the little table where they do the sacrament and stuff like that. And so there's nobody standing up at the pulpit. And so I would say for a long time, like maybe a good year or so, maybe even a little bit more, I literally thought that there was like voices from heaven <laughs> coming down to say the sacramental prayers. And I was just shocked. I was like, why is this like not in the news? Like, why does not everybody come to my church? Because we have voices from heaven saying prayers. Like, do they not know how amazing and a miracle this is? Um, so I literally thought that for a good long while. But I realized this past Sunday, I'm like, yeah, you know, voices coming from heaven and saying prayers. Of course, that's not what it was. Of course, it was the priests over in the corner who have the little pull-out microphone thing. But that's pretty amazing. But 10 times more amazing is that my sins are being taken away. Like, that is the miracle that is happening in this moment when I take the sacrament. And so, that was just really impressed upon me this week. So... I wanted to share that with you guys. That's kind of how my sacrament experience became more meaningful, at least this week. All right. How do the bread, water, and other elements of this ordinance help you remember him and his suffering? Um, like I said, I remember the stories of him, and I remember, you know, the stories that I have with him when I feel his grace in my life and where he's helped me in the times where I've felt that, you know, those sins taken away from me and the times where I felt close to my father in heaven because of Christ's sacrifice and because of his grace. Those are the stories that I remember during that time. And those are the stories that I focus on during that time. And so that helps me remember him and what he did in the garden of Gethsemane and on the cross for me. All right, the next section in Come Follow Me, the Savior suffered for me in Gethsemane. President Russell M. Nelson invited us to invest time in learning about the Savior and his atoning sacrifice. And that's from the talk, Drawing the Power of Jesus Christ into Our Lives. And that's from the Ensign May 2017, which I totally invite you to go listen to that talk or read that talk because it is amazing. It's got some really great examples of how to draw the power of Jesus Christ into, into our lives. And I love one of the things that he says, which, you know, come follow me, just quoted, that we need to invest time in learning about our Savior and then learning about his sacrifice and why it happened and how it happened and you know how do we apply that to our life because if we can learn that then we know the stories right then we know how to remember him and we know how to think about him during the sacrament we know how to come closer to him the more we know him 
the better we can come closer to him, the more we can be like him, right? And so it asks you a couple different questions. And as you go through and look at like the different scriptures and say like, what kind of stands out to you? So the first question it asks is, why was the Savior's atonement necessary? And so the first scripture selection it gives you is 2 Nephi 2, 5 through 10. I read through this and this is kind of like Lehi kind of talking about, you know, the act and be acted upon. And this is the first time that I know of in the Book of Mormon that we really see what we offer in return for Christ's sacrifice. You know, Christ comes to us and says, hey, I'll take your sins upon me, but here's what I want in exchange. And we read in 2 Nephi 2, 7, it says, Behold, he offereth himself a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of the law and to all those who have, and this is what he wants from us, a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Christ comes to us and says, hey, I can take on your sins. Here's what I want from you. I want you to mold your heart to the will of my Father in heaven and be contrite. You know, be sorry for the things that you've done and don't do them again. Try to be more like my Father in heaven, more like how we want you to be. Be the person that we want you to be. And that's what we offer him in return, right? And one of the things that stood out to me in these scriptures that I read this week that was interesting was 2 Nephi 2, 8. And it says, Wherefore, how great the importance to make these things known unto the inhabitants of the earth. So part of going in and, you know, this whole interchange with Christ taking our sins and us having the broken heart and contrite spirit is making these things known to the inhabitants of the earth. It's missionary work. You know, I have this wonderful relationship with my Heavenly Father. I have this amazing gift from Christ. I need to make sure that other people have the opportunity to have the same gift from Christ that I have. And so that's kind of a responsibility that I saw that came along with the sacrament this week, which I'd never seen before. And I thought that was really interesting. All right, the next scripture selection that comes up um, is 2 Nephi 2, and this is 17 through 26. So we're a little bit further along in this chapter, okay? And this is where they kind of, you know, summarize what happened in the Garden of Eden. And, you know, Adam and Eve, they partake of the fruit and they're cast out of the Garden of Eden. And that puts us in a state of probation and, you know, all this stuff happened. And in 24 we read, But behold, all these things have been done in wisdom of him who knoweth all things. And 25, and Adam fell that men might be, and men are that they might have joy. And so interesting to me, 24 stuck out to me this week. And it says, but behold, all things have been done in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things. To me, this was especially meaningful this week as we saw the Garden of Gethsemane where Christ took upon him all of our pains, all of our sins, all of our illnesses, all of our frailties. He took all of that on him. So we have a God who not only knows everything, like knows everything, 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 but we have a God who knows personally and who has been through what we have been through and who has felt it that knows. Whatever you have been through, whatever hurts you, whatever hurts you are carrying around, whatever scars you are carrying around, Christ knows what that feels like. And he has been through it and he feels you. Like he feels you on that. He knows what it feels like to go through that. Right. And so it's not just an intellectual knowledge that Christ has, but it is an actual physical knowledge of what you've been through, which is amazing to me and such a blessing. And sorry, guys, you can hear my dog barking in the background. Um, I think it's the UPS guy and he's just, you know, he's barking at him. But anyways, um, moving on. Okay. Going back to where we were in second Nephi two, 
Alright, continuing on, Adam felt that men might be and men are that they might have joy. You know, we know that scripture pretty well, um, that Adam fell, and you know, because of that, we are in a sinful world, right? And then 26, and the Messiah cometh in the fullness of time that he may redeem the children of men from the fall. Adam set into motion this whole plan, and then Christ comes and saves us from our sins in this plan, right? And because they are redeemed, because we are redeemed from the fall through Christ, this is there in 2 Nephi 2. They have become free forever. What a blessing that is. We are free from sin. We are free from bondage. We are free from all the bad and yucky stuff in the world through Christ's atonement. And that is amazing to act for themselves and not to be acted upon. We have agency to be able to act for ourselves. And when we mess up, we have Christ's atonement to apply to those mess ups. And that's what makes this life so great because we can learn. We have the freedom to make mistakes. We have that safety net underneath us for when we fall. And I love that. It's just so beautiful. Um, another scripture, Come Follow Me, references is 2 Nephi 9.21. And it says, He suffereth the pains of all men, yea, the pains of every living creature, both men, women, and children, all who belong to the family of Adam. And so I love that he talks about not just the sins did the atonement take on, but also the pains, right? And so it takes on all the pains. And again, any any bad thing that you've ever felt or gone through, like the atonement takes that on. All right, next question that Come Follow Me asks, what did the Savior experience as he suffered? We've all already talked a little bit about the Garden of Gethsemane. But it's interesting to me because the scriptures that they put here talk also a little bit about his just mortal experience in general. Um, we have the first one up is from my buddy Isaiah. Isaiah 53.3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him, and he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. And that last part to me is just like chill bump inducing. With his stripes, we are healed. So he was despised and rejected of men. If you've ever felt rejected and alone, Christ knows what that's like. He was a man of sorrows. If you've ever felt sorrow or depressed or in grief... He knows what that's like. We esteemed him not. If you've ever felt like people don't hold you in high esteem, they think badly of you, he knows what that's like. He's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. You know, he's wounded for our transgressions, our sins. I mean, he knows what all this feels like. That is what is so amazing to me about the atonement is not only is our sins, but it's everything that's bad or negative or evil that's, you know, a product of this fallen world. He took that upon him as well. And that is beautiful to me. And by his stripes, we are healed. All right, up next, how does Christ's suffering affect my life? And in John 10.10, we read, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And I love like just the visual image of that, that they might have life. So yes, we have life in Christ and, you know, we'll have life after this life because of Christ, but that we may have it more abundantly. That to me says that, you know, we're not just living life, but we're living life with joy. You know, Adam fell that men might be and men are that they might have joy. Um, living life out loud, living, you know, not just in the gray, but living with color kind of abundantly. That's what I see in that scripture there. And that's why I really like it. And then I love this one here from Hebrews 4. 
I just, I guess I like the visual imagery of this one, but it says Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. I love that. Like again, chill bump inducing boldly unto the throne of grace right? That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And I feel really strongly about this. You know, we hear a lot of times that the atonement applies to us after this life, after all we can do. But I believe that the atonement applies to us every single second that we are in this life. And it is a strengthening power, that grace, it strengthens us past our own abilities. It strengthens us and it helps us through those times where we are tempted, those times when we are tried. You know, if you've ever been through something really hard and you just felt like there was somebody walking hand in hand with you, that's the grace of Christ that you have that's enabling you, that enabling power to get through that. Um, You know, you think about the little footsteps poem where, you know, you've got the two pairs of footsteps on the sand and, you know, the guy's talking to Christ and saying, oh, you know, but in the times that were really hard, Christ, I only see one pair of footsteps. And, you know, Christ says it was there that I carried you. I think for me, there's probably like a big long line in the sand where Christ had to drag me in some of these particular situations. But that's the grace of Christ. (laughs) That Even though that situation was really hard and I went through it being dragged through it, he still dragged me through it. And I got through it and to the other side with his enabling power. So it makes me think of um, we can find grace to help in the time of need when we need to be dragged through things. All right. Also, another scripture it references in 1 John 1, 7, it says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light. And I love that. I'm like, let's find the light in our lives. Let's find the light in this world and walk in the light just like he did. And then the final scripture that they reference is Moroni. I love some Moroni, right? It's Moroni 10, 32 through 33. Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him. And if you shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all your might, your mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you that you, by his grace, you may be perfect in Christ. That's that grace again that we're talking about. And if by the grace of God you are perfect in Christ, you can in no wise deny the power of God because you feel that grace in your life. And you're like, I know I couldn't do this on my own. I know that Christ strengthened me and got me through this experience, right? And again, if you by the grace of God are perfect in Christ and deny not his power, then you are sanctified in Christ. And if you've ever looked up the word sanctified, you know that that means it's something where it's made pure. You are made pure in Christ. Beautiful, beautiful symbolism there of that. And then going on a little bit further, Moroni says, you become holy without spot. You know, we are in a world that is very dirty. And we get lots of spots on us, even when we try not to, even when we try to to be in the best places and to look at the best things and listen to the best things, we still get those spots of the world on us. And when we come into Christ, we are sanctified and we become holy without spot. And I love the imagery of that. Okay, let's jump back into Come Follow Me. Um, The next section in Come Follow Me says, As you learn about what happened in Gethsemane, it might be interesting to know how that Gethsemane was a garden of olive trees and included an olive press. And so they invite you to learn a little bit more about the process of pressing olive oil and how it relates to the atonement. And there is actually a really cool video out there. It's from the Nazareth Village. 
Um, I'll put the YouTube link up on my Facebook and my other social media platforms now that I have them. And you can go look at it. But it's this guy and he's explaining the process of how they press olives. And how they did it in Christ time. And what they would do is they would take the olives. And you know, olives, I'm used to olives, I will tell you, as being like fairly mushy things. Because I'm used to like the green olives that, you know, you pluck out of the jar and you put one on the end of each one of your fingers and walk around and chase your siblings with them. You you didn't do that? It was just me? Okay, just me. The little green olives with the red things in the middle. Okay, that's, that's what I think of when I think of olives. But they're not like that on the tree they're actually kind of like hard like really hard and so to get the oil out of them there's like this big giant like i would say almost like circular bathtub type thing and they would put the olives in there and there was this big large stone and they would use a donkey to walk in circles around the circular like little tub and it would crush the olives into a paste once they had this like paste, and it was kind of like a brownie red, kind of like dried blood kind of almost color, right? And so once they had this paste, they would go and they would take it and they'd put it in these little baskets. And these little baskets that they wove looked like donuts. They've got like a hole in the middle and then they've got the side where they would like kind of pack the paste in. And then they would go and they'd put it in these pressers. And so you have the olive paste in the donut baskets and they would stack them on top of each other, one on top of each other. And then they would use a really heavy weight and they would push down on the heavy weight and it would extract the oil. And the best oil was the first oil that came out of it. And that was the oil that they used for cooking, that they used for perfume, that they used for, you know, anything that they needed. And that was like the best oil. They would press it three different times. Okay, so that first one was the best oil. The second one was like the medium rate oil. And so that's what they used maybe for like not necessarily good things. Like, I mean, Maybe the poor people would use it for cooking and things like that. And then the third time that they pressed it down, that would be like the really crude olive oil. And so that would be what they would use for, I think they said they used it to make soap out of, I don't know, you can go watch the video. But I think the symbolism of the weight being pushed down three different times is very interesting to me. The three different presses that they do on those different olive oil baskets. It was a really interesting video, so I invite you to go watch that because I can definitely see that there was, you know, a correlation between what Christ went through and what the olives go, go through. You know, the pressure and the press, and then from that, there's things like oil to fill lamps, right? And you get light in your life from it. And then there's oil that they can use in medicines that heal people. And there's oil that they use in cooking that feed people. And that is what Christ does, you know, because of the pressure that he went through in the Garden of Gethsemane, that is the product, light and healing and life that we get from him. And so I love kind of the parable of the olive press, if as it were. So go check out that video because it's really good. Ah, we're running out of time. Okay, so the last section I want to talk about in Come Follow Me is about conversion. Okay, it says conversion is an ongoing process. Think about the experiences Peter had with the Savior, the miracles he witnessed, and the doctrine he learned. Okay, then why then would the Savior say to Peter, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren? Wouldn't he assume that Peter was already converted? Okay, so there is a difference between having a testimony and being truly converted. And David A. Bednar has a really good talk about this called Converted Unto the Lord that I definitely recommend you read. But to me, the way I have always reasoned this out in my mind is that testimony is a one-time thing. Like, it, you light a match and it grows big and bright and then, you know, eventually the match dies out, but you always have that memory of the flame. Conversion is like having a fire in your fireplace that never goes out. 
It's the difference, right? You light that match and if it catches on the log and it starts burning, then you've always got that with you. So testimony is a moment. Conversion is an ongoing process. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? You know, testimony is getting up and going jogging one day. Conversion is training for a marathon and going running over and over and over and over again. I don't know if that makes sense, if that's a good way to portray it or not. But that's what I see it as. I see, you know, testimony being like, I have a testimony of the Book of Mormon. Well, great, but to be really converted to the Book of Mormon, I need to be reading it every day. And I need to be rereading it over and over again. And I need to be, you know, learning of it and feeling the Spirit as I read the Book of Mormon. And, you know, I can have a testimony of Jesus Christ. But to be converted to Jesus Christ, I need to be learning of Him. I need to be taking on His atonement onto me. I need to be taking the sacrament. I need to be following Him. Like, it's not just enough to have a testimony. Conversion is doing. Conversion is going out there and it's putting action to that testimony. So that's me reasoning it out as I'm talking out loud. I hope that made sense to you. Um, So testimony is knowing something and conversion is putting action to it in a longer lasting fashion. All right, guys, thanks for hanging out with me. Um, It's been a good episode. I really loved learning about the Garden of Gethsemane this week and having all these different things to think about. As always, feel free to reach out to me on the various social media platforms or through email, thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. And I hope you guys have a wonderful week. Keep loving, keep reading, and keep being lights. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Have a question or comment? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.